Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about a very important topic. Is Israel an occupier of Palestinian land as is so often claimed against the state of Israel? And who owns from the river to the sea? And what is the river and what is the sea? We are going to talk about a very fundamental question, a critical question. Is there such a thing as the country of Palestine? Did it pre-exist Israel before 1948? We're going to talk about what are the halachic borders of Israel. It turns out there are two sets, a broader set of ownership, the land of Israel, and within that, a subset of where there is the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael that would mandate the doing of the mitzvahs at Tluyas Baris, the mitzvahs that are endemic to the land of Israel, like Chumas and Maestras. We are going to talk about exchanging land for peace. Is it permitted to exchange land for peace? And now that we are effectively in the Gaza Strip, Israel has retaken possession of most of it. Is it going to be permitted to leave? Or now that we have possession, is it required halachically to stay? As we are talking about the borders of the land of Israel, we'll talk about additional mitzvahs that may or may not be relevant. For example, is there a mitzvah to be buried in Israel? And if so, where? Is there a mitzvah to make aliyah? And if so, where? Is there a mitzvah to exhume a body that was buried outside of Israel? And if so, where? In fact, we see this concept at the end of Parshas Vayigash, that Yaakov was getting quite elderly. His days were numbered. And he calls in his son Yosef and he says, make sure I'll not seek Bereni b'Mitzrayim, make sure that I am not buried in Mitzrayim. He wanted to be buried up in Eretz Yisrael. In fact, Parsha Svayichi, that's how it starts towards the beginning of the Parsha. Yaakov makes Yosef swear, don't bury me in Egypt, rather in the Maras HaMachbela and the end of the Parsha, towards the end of the Parsha, which is effectively the... Uh, and the Sefer Beratius, we see the great procession escorting the body of Yaakov to be buried in the land of Israel. Today, we are going to be talking about this topic, the borders of Israel, who owns it from a halachic perspective, also from an international law perspective, and also from a historical perspective. So we're going to touch on all three of those, halacha, international law, and history, and we will have three experts talking about each of those specific areas when it comes to the halacha. We will be joined by Rabbi Herschel Schachter, who is the posek of the OU and the Rosh Hashiva of Ritz, talking about international law. We will be joined by Professor Eugene Kantorovich. He is a legal scholar of international international law. And to talk history, we will be joined by Dr. Henry Abramson, the great historian and also a dean of Turo College. Now, I do want to say from the get-go that there is a huge amount of controversy surrounding our topic and the opinions. I'm using the word opinions, not facts. And the opinions are diametrically opposed one to the other. They are on the extremes. And this we will see right now by listening to some clips. First, we'll hear the Palestinian view. This is promulgated by the founder and executive director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. That's called C-A-I-R. His name is Nihad Awad. He said this at an AMP convention. AMP stands for American Muslims for Palestine. And this is what he had to say. The people of Gaza only decided to break the siege, the walls of the concentration camp on October 7th. And yes, I was happy to see people breaking the siege and throwing down the shackles of their own land and walk free into their lands that they were not allowed to walk in. 
And yes, the people of Gaza have the right to self-defense, have the right to defend themselves. And yes, Israel as an occupying power does not have that right to self-defense. So basically he's saying that the Palestinians, the Gazans, they broke out of the Gaza Strip. That was their concentration camp into their land, which is Israel. Now let's hear the second clip. This is from an interview with Roshan Mohammed Salih. He is the editor of a Muslim community website and social media platform. This is what he had to say. I'm asking you what the solution is. You go off in some kind of strange way. What is the solution? The solution is for Israel to leave the land, hand it back to the Palestinians, the rightful owners, and all the settlers to go back to Europe and everywhere else where they came from. Well, the, the Arab lands, 55% came from the Arab lands, they're not going to get welcomed to why Yemen they, why and Egypt. So when people talk about from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, what are they calling for? First, what's the river? The river is the Jordan River. And what's the sea? That's the Mediterranean Sea. Those are the borders of Israel on the east and the west. And it includes Israel and what is commonly referred to as the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. So if somebody is chanting that slogan, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Effectively, they are calling for the extermination of Israel. The extermination of Israel, which would not be a wise thing, even for the Arabs, that would leave a tremendous vacuum, and that would leave the Palestinian Authority, the supporters of terrorism, Hamas, to take over. That would not be good for the Middle East. It would not be good for the world, and it would not be good for humanity in general. Now, on the other side of the coin, we have the Jewish view of current events and the borders of Israel discussed in an interview by Sky News with Tsipi Hatovli, Israel's ambassador to the UK. And uh, the interviewer was fairly belligerent to her. And she, in that conversation, rejected outright the concept of a two-state solution to resolve the Israel-Palestinian conflict. This is what she had to say. Israel knows today, and the world should know now, the reason the Oslo Accords failed is because the Palestinians never wanted to have a state next to Israel. They want to have a state from the river to the sea. So the two-state solution is dead. Why are you obsessed with a formula that never worked, that created this radical people in the other side? Why are you obsessed with that? Just one more clip. Mossab Hassan Yousaf. He is the disowned eldest son of the co-founder of Hamas. He said the following about, quote-unquote, the state of Palestine. Okay, you want to be pro-Palestine? First of all, get to know what Palestine is. You know, you will ask down the street, how many people, what Palestine? They don't know what Palestine is. You, You ask them, what was the name of the prime minister or the king or the president of Palestine prior to the establishment of the state of Israel? They don't know because there was no such a thing. As I said before, there is a huge amount of controversy surrounding our topic and the opinions are diametrically opposed one to the other. But we're not going to focus on opinions today. We are going to focus on the facts. We're going to focus on the facts, not the opinion. Just to get back to Parsha, Parsha, Svayigash, we have Yaakov Avinu. He is about to head out of Canaan, going down to Mitzrayim, going down to Egypt. 
And a Kaddish Baruch who says to him as follows, Don't be scared to go down. Down there I will make you into a Goy Gadol. I'll make you a Goy Gadol Asim Hashem. I'll make you into a great nation. That's going to happen down there. It's not going to happen in Canaan. It's going to happen down there. And don't worry, he says, I will go down with you. But also not only will I go down with you, said a Kaddish Baruch Hu, I'll take you out as well. I will come back and you will be buried in the land of Canaan in the Maras Amachpela. So the Sephorno address is an interesting thing. He doesn't ask the question explicitly, but effectively, this is what he's addressing is, so why did the Galos have to be, why did the exile have to be in the land of Egypt? Why couldn't it simply be in the land of Canaan? Stay there. Why travel? How could it be possibly in the land of Canaan? That's not an exile. You're staying in your country because effectively it's not the country of the Jews yet. This is still a country, Eretz Lolahem. Avram Avinu was told that his descendants are going to be in a country. They're going to be foreigners, a country not theirs. But if the land of Canaan wasn't officially yet given to the nation of Israel, so the exile could be in the land of Canaan. It could be right there. What's a possible proof for this? The 400 years of the Galos. When did we start counting 400 years? It's not when they got to Egypt, but from the birth of Yitzchak, who he himself lived his whole life in the land of Israel. He never left. And nonetheless, we're counting the Galos from when he was born. Effectively, the Galos could be in the land of Israel. Accordingly, why wasn't that the case? And this forno says as follows. If Kalal Yishola, the descendants of Yaakov Avinu, stayed in the land of Canaan, what would happen? They would intermarry. They would assimilate. That is not a good start to the nation of Israel, but rather they had to go down to Egypt where they had the philosophy of, we're not going to even eat with the Jews. The Jews were segregated. They were segregated and looked down upon by the Egyptians, saying this is a subhuman race. We're not going to even eat with these people. But what was the effect of that? The effect of that was by Hisham Lagoy, as we say in Devarim Chafav, that comes to teach us, Yisrael Mitsuyanim Sham, they were improved there. They became amazing. They were separated. They were became a nation into themselves. And we see, interestingly, depending on the environment that we're in, had they been in Canaan, it would have been assimilation. In Mitzrayim, it's anti-Semitism. But that's what caused Klal Yisrael to be a nation, a unbelievable nation. But that's what caused Klal Yisrael to be Legoy Nivdal, a separate and special nation. That is the language of the Sephorno. And based on that, I saw that adding on to that Sforno, that when there is a concern, or not a, just a concern, but when there is actually assimilation, as there would have been in the land of Canaan, what often kicks in thereafterward is sequestering of the Jews, anti-Semitism in a very significant way, because if the Jews aren't going to separate themselves, it'll be the non-Jews through anti-Semitism that separate us. And unfortunately, that we, that's what we see throughout the world, just like Canaan, in Canaan, it would have been assimilation. Accordingly, it became, in the land of Egypt, it wasn't assimilation. It was the opposite. It was anti-Semitism forcing us to stay as a nation separate from the non-Jews. We see that it happened in Germany before World War II as well. The assimilation was rampant. Assimilation was rampant, and thereafterward came the anti-Semitism. It was long away, but then it became even more significant. And that's Rahman Litzlan. It seems to be what we're seeing throughout the world, very prominently in the United States, at the universities in the United States, and outside the universities in the United States, we had assimilation. And now, when Klal Yisrael doesn't make Kiddush, when we don't sanctify ourselves, it's the non-Jews that come and make Havdalah for us. So the message here, Klal Yisrael, let's make Kiddush together.
Let's sanctify ourselves together. And I want to say this show is critical because as we have so many claims against us, taking the land, stealers of the land, occupiers of the land, let's look at the facts. Let's hear from the halachic perspective. Let's hear from the international law perspective. Let's hear from the historical perspective. Not what are the opinions, not what are the uneducated opinions, but what are the facts? We need to know the facts, if nothing else, for ourselves to know the MS of who owns the land and what parts of the land. Before we go to our guest, let's hear the riddle of the week. This week's riddle is based on something that happened this very past Shabbos, Parshas Miketz. We were in Shul, and right at the beginning of Marav and Azaka, that's a siren went off, and that's the signal that you better head to the bomb shelter as quickly as possible. So it's right at the beginning of Marav and Shul, and the whole minion heads off into the Miklat, the bomb shelter. There's a quick discussion down there, should we continue Marav down here or go back to Shul? And it was decided to have... Marav continue in the bomb shelter. Who knows? You go back to shul and there could be another siren that goes off. So we had the same chazan. He brought his talis. He was wearing it still. We had our sidurim down there in the bomb shelter. It actually wasn't the bomb shelter in the shul. It was across the street. There's a large public bomb shelter there. Then we had Marav. And right afterward... Before the completion of Marav, everyone finished the Shemona Esrei. There was a discussion, should we say the bracha, what's referred to as the Birkas Me'ein Sheva. That's the bracha we say, Friday night only, Magen Avos Bidvaro, and it ends with a bracha at the end there. And we had the question, should we say that or not? Why yes, why no? So in Orachayim, in Shulchan Orach, Orachayim, Simon Reish Samechess, Si'if Yud, it says as follows, Ein Omrim Bracha Me'ein Sheva Bebeis Chasonim Vavelim. You don't say this bracha, in a house that you are davening in. For example, you're davening with a chassan, so you had your own minion, or a base avil, you had your own minion. So the Mishnah Bruce says as follows, If you're davening in a house, apparently you're davening in a place other than a set shul, so it's not a base kinesis kavua, we would not be saying the bracha me'ein shavu. So the question is, you're in a bomb shelter. You're with your minion from the shul, but you're in a bomb shelter. This happened to be in Yerushalayim also, that's going to be possibly an important fact, but maybe not. The question is, would we say the bracha mi'ein sheva, or would we not? And an additional question, we'll call this part B, is there a difference between if the entire minion went into that miklat, or just a majority, or maybe just a part, a fraction? If we started with 50 people, and people got lost along the way, or they went back to the shul, they went to their homes— and we wound up, for example, with a third of the minion or, or a quarter of the minion. Is that going to make a difference in our analysis? I'd love to hear from you. Get your peace, ke'alacha. Send in your mekoros arguments one way or the other that it should or should not be said in that situation. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. And now let's go and hear from our guests.
Joining us now is Rabbi Herschel Schachter. Rav Schachter is a renowned posek. He is the posek of the Orthodox Union and also the Rosh Yeshiva of Rav Yitzhak Alchanan. Rav Schachter, thank you so much for joining us. Good evening, Shalom Aleichem. About you, it's good morning, okay? Good morning, good morning. Yeah, a little bit of a time change. So, Rav Shechta, we are talking about the borders, the halachic borders of Eretz Yisrael, and we'd love to hear from you. What are the halachic borders, current halachic borders? When were they established historically? And if you could please talk about all four sides, north, south, east, and west. Uh, the two different aspects to Eretz Yisrael, there's... In the days of Abraham Avinu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave Eretz Yisrael to Abraham Avinu and to his descendants, and that's the ownership of Eretz Yisrael. And then in the days of Yeshua Ben-Nun, when uh, he led the Jewish army across the Yardin, and they, and they conquered Eretz Yisrael, it took seven years to conquer the land. That's how it says in Tanakh, because there were 31 kings who had uh, palaces there in Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael is very centrally located. It's the link between the three continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. Whoever controls Eretz Yisrael stands a better chance of controlling all the three uh, continents. And Napoleon wanted to conquer Palestine, and the Nazis wanted to take over Palestine. That's when they started to lose the war. So when Yeshua ben Nun conquered Eretz Yisrael, um, it took seven years to conquer the land, and it took another seven years to divide the land. First, I had to divide it among the Shvatim, the tribes, then among the families, then among the individuals. So that took seven years. So after the first 14 years were over, then Eretz Yisrael got Kedusha. So you have to determine what are the borders for the purpose of ownership of Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael belongs to the Jewish people from the days of Avram Avinu. We never lost our ownership. And Eretz Yisrael was endowed with Kedusha in the days of Yeshua Benun, but that Kedusha was canceled when the Babylonian armies took away Eretz Yisrael from the Jewish people. The Kedusha rested on the Kibush on conquering the land. So when the land was taken away from the Jewish government, so the Kedusha vanished for 70 years of Golas Bavel. Uh, there was no Kedusha in Eretz Yisrael. Then when Ezra and Nehemiah brought the Jewish people back from Bovel after the 70 years were up, then they endowed, they built the second Mesa Mikush, they endowed Eretz Yisrael with Kedusha. But the, the Gemara tells us there were many areas that had Kedusha Bishayna that were endowed with Kedusha in the days of Yeshua ben Nun. But uh, by the, when Ezra and Nehemiah came back, they did not sanctify the entire Eretz Yisrael. There were big chunks of Eretz Yisrael that never had Kedusha the second time around. So the Kedusha Eretz that's relevant for the agricultural mitzvahs. Agricultural mitzvahs only apply in that part of the country that has Kedusha. There are there's some other mitzvahs that are not agricultural mitzvahs, other dinim that depend on Eretz Yisrael, the country that belongs to the Jewish people. So those dinim depend on the Ramam rise. Those dinim, for example, you can only confer smicha or the rabbinic ordination can only be conferred in Eretz Yisrael. The one is conferring the smicha and the one is receiving the smicha. They don't have to be in the presence of each other, but they both have to be in Eretz Yisrael. So the Ramam says that din doesn't depend on the areas in Eretz Yisrael that have sanctity. That's only for the agricultural mitzvahs. That din only de- that, that din depends on an area that once had Kedusha Saaretz. That's enough. That's called Eretz Yisrael. Or uh, there's several other dinim like that that depend on what we say, the land of Israel, not the Kedusha Saaretz. So basically there are two sets of... Two sets right. of borders then. Sets of border from Avram Avinu would be the Ota, the Bailus on the land. And when it comes to the Ole Bavel, that's Mitzvah Satluya Sparas. So, big nafkamina between the two. Right. 
So the Torah gives us the borders, Torah, the end of Chomish uh, Bamidbar, gives us the borders of Eretz Israel. It's uh, from some location that's called Horahor, to the northwest of Eretz Israel. Um, it's a question what it corresponds to. Some say that it corresponds to um, Tripoli. Yeah, it's pretty high up. Others say it's much uh, further down. And then you draw a line to the Yardane River. You go down the Yardane. And then on the western border, you have Mediterranean up until Nacham Mitzrayim. So that's we're not too sure what Nacham Mitzrayim is. Rashi writes that Nacham Mitzrayim is the Nile River. The Nile River is the middle of Egypt. So according to Rashi, it so belongs to the Jewish people till the Nile River. I remember after the Sinai campaign, Rabbi Gorin was at that time the chief chaplain in the army. He was not yet appointed the chief rabbi. So he came there. It came to America and he traveled all over. He spoke, he's a very charismatic speaker, very entertaining, very learned, very learned person, but quite a, um, quite a character. Quite a colorful person. So he said, we almost passed like Rashi in the Sinai campaign. They were almost prepared to go to the Nile River. It's usually assumed to be some little wadi that's called Wadi Al-Arish. That's supposed to be the southwestern uh, border of Eretz Yisrael. And that's supposed to go into the Yardane somehow. So the borders of Eretz Yisrael that belong to the Jewish people are the, the borders that are described in the Chumash. Then whatever area had Kedusha, in the first time, in the days of Yeshua Ben-Nun, all of that was canceled when the Babylonian armies undid the kibush, the conquest of the Jewish people. And they took over Eretzel and they took it away from the Jewish government. So 70 years later, the Gemara tells us there were many areas that were endowed with Kedusha the first time around, the second time around. They never got that far. They never endowed that with the Kedusha. So now, the, on, on, on the on the Eretz Israel borders, when it comes to the south and the east, how mm-hmm. far south would it go? Um, a lot would be included, would not be included. I think they assume a lot is not included in the area that has kedusha. And, and, and so five. somewhere in the Negev, it would end somewhere in the Negev. I think so. And on the eastern side. Eastern side, it's not clear whether they ever endowed Aver Hayardain with Kedusha. The second time. First time days of Moshe Rabbeinu, they endowed Aver Hayardain with Kedusha. And all the mitzvahs of Trumas and Maishish meet to be over, all the mitzvahs applied. But the so second time around, it's uh, questionable. We're not too sure how far the issue went the second time around. Uh-huh. Now, so so what would come out of this, if we compare it to today's borders, is that everything would be included plus, with the exception of something on the south. Uh, the very north also, it's not so clear. Ramot HaGolan, it, uh, once you go very high over there, even below Horahor, even the Gemara calls that the top, the west, the northwestern corner of Eretzol is Horahor. The Gemara calls it Kapluria. So we're not sure which which mountain that corresponds to, but um, it could well be that the Jewish Yishuv and the Baisheni didn't go that high. So it could be that the northern areas, the northern parts of Ramat Galam, could be that it belongs to the Jewish people, but uh, it could be as never it was never endowed with Kedusha the second time around. Right. So so it it would have the ownership of Eretz just not the Kedusha, because the Ole Bavel didn't get to there. I think so. Yeah. Right. Okay. Very good. So if if we can go into the exchanges of land, peace for land is what it was called. So we have Bailus, and that's what we're really talking about. Then is the areas that we have Bailus over when it comes to exchanging land, not the Kedusha, because Kedusha is relevant for Mitzvah Tuliyas Baris. 
Bailos would be the question of ownership of the land. Is there a permit in halacha to exchange land that is halachically owned by the Jews, halachically owned by Israel, in order to barter for peace? The Jewish people are very interested in peace. Every day when we daven Shman Esrei, we end up Sim Shalom. And the reason why that's the conclusion of Shman Esrei, because nothing is of value if you don't have peace. The main thing in, in all of life is that it should be peaceful. And uh, But unfortunately, sometimes you have a din of Melchemist uh, Mitzvah, you're obligated to go to war. And uh, when you have a Melchemist Mitzvah, you're obligated to ignore the fact that there's Sakonis Nefoshes. It's self-understood. If you go to war, you're going to lose. You're going to be killing people from the enemy. You're going to be putting your own soldiers into mortal danger, which usually is not allowed Not allowed to kill Nochrim and not allowed to put our soldiers into danger. But that's a din of Muhammad. When you have a Muhammad, sometimes you have a Muhammad's mitzvah. We can't have, there's a Muhammad's or a shust, an optional Muhammad. We can't have any Muhammad's or shust because you have to have authorization from the Sanhedrin to go to Muhammad's or shust. We don't have any Sanhedrin. So we can only have Muhammad's mitzvah today. Muhammad's mitzvah is the uh, Israeli army is known as Israeli Defense Force, IDF. In Hebrew, it's Tzva Haganah. To protect the Jewish community, that's a Melchemist Mitzvah. We're not interested in conquering other lands. We just want to protect the Jewish community in Eretz Israel. So that constitutes a Melchemist Mitzvah. So there's another Melchemist Mitzvah. The Ramban writes in the Sefer Mitzvah, throughout all the generations, there's a Mitzvah, if it's possible for the Jewish people, to put together an army and to conquer Eretz Yisrael, the parts of Eretz Yisrael that belong to the Jewish people. No mitzvah to expand Eretz Yisrael, to conquer the land that belongs to us, and to establish a Jewish government. Not enough that we should live there. That's a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael is another mitzvah. There's a mitzvah we should establish a Jewish, Jewish government that has um, governs governs the, the land of Eretz Yisrael. The political uh, political entity of Medina Yisrael to establish a Jewish government over all of Eretz Yisrael. We're obligated to go to war. Go to war means you can lose soldiers. You can lose lives. And if we have Eretz Yisrael and, and the enemy comes, they don't want to kill anybody. They don't want, they're not threatening to kill anyone. They just want to take over the, the land. They, they, want to, they want to be part of their country. So the Ramban says you're obligated to fight that to maintain all of Eretz Yisrael as described in the Chumash, all of the borders of Eretz Yisrael under Jewish uh, control. That's, uh, so you're not allowed to give away land for peace. The only time it would be permissible, let's say, if maintaining Jewish control of all of Eretz Yisrael means that the life is going to be so miserable. The enemy keeps on shooting missiles and rockets, and they keep on, uh, there are always um, terror attacks, and they're always killing people. Every other day, they're killing somebody. So if life is so miserable that uh, it doesn't really pay, then we're really fighting a losing battle. So then there's no mitzvah to fight. Then there's a mitzvah to surrender to the enemy and show an Aymarame. So that's the question. Is life in Eretz Yisrael so miserable? that it doesn't pay because we're losing lives every day. I think the minority of the Jews in Eretz Yisrael feel that we're, we're losing the war. It doesn't pay, and we should give away the whole land to, to the Arabs and we'll uh, live in peace with them. I think it's chaloimus. We're not going to live in peace with them, but uh, that's what they think. But my impression is that the majority of the Jews who live in Eretz Yisrael, who constitute Kalal Yisrael, are, are we winning the war or losing the war? The majority of the people feel that we're winning the war. Eretz Yisrael is way ahead in all areas, in physics and chemistry and medicine and mathematics and everything. 
it's fantastic. And, and the people who live in Eretzot don't feel at all that it's like a war zone. So exchanging in 205, the Gaza Strip for peace, was that halachically permitted or not? It was not permitted, and it didn't make sense uh, at that time, at the time that they did it. I remember we were in Eretz Yisrael in the summertime for the last uh, 25 or 30 years. We go to Eretz Yisrael to participate every summer in the NCSY learning program. So I remember the summer before the uh, disengagement there, when they gave away uh, Gaza. So there was such uh, an uproar. Most of the people in Eretz were not were not in favor. That was all the Rosh HaMemshala at that time. Was in trouble with other things. So he wanted to divert the attention of the public. His son was in trouble. So he wanted to divert everyone's attention. So he said he's going to give away the Gaza. The whole thing was a mistake from day number one. And, and now that we have effectively or almost repossessed it, we're in the process of doing so, would it be permitted to leave Gaza again or would we be halakhically required to repossess the land? If the if the world is going to gang up against the Jews and the whole the whole United Nations is going to be opposed to Israel, they're going to say that we're, we're, we're taking over the whole Middle East. So if they won't let us, they won't let us. Look, we're not to go to war against the whole world. That it could be we'll lose. That if we'll have fight the fight against the whole United Nations, could be that then we will lose the war. But um, if if we can repossess Gaza and keep everything under control, then then uh, we're not then you're not permitted to give it away. Okay, so let, let's go into a different area other than the war. The mitzvah of moving to Eretz Israel. Is there a mitzvah today? Some want to claim because of the military concerns and the danger. Maybe it's not. Maybe there is. So is there a mitzvah making Aliyah? And if so, to which areas would it be mandated or a mitzvah to move to? Would a lot, for example, or the negative parts of the negative be excluded from the mitzvah? A hundred years ago, one of the big uh, tzaddikim who, who passed away was uh, Achsidish Rebbe, Sochet Shavu Rebbe. He's known as the Avni Nezer. And uh, this, he has uh, several volumes of Chuvas, very, he was a super genius, one of the Polish Goinim, and he has very strong Chuvas. So he has, uh, they asked him the following Shaila, is there a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael Bizman Azeh? And if there is a mitzvah, how come the Gdole HaChasidus didn't go to Eretz Yisrael? So he has a very long Chuvas, and he says, there absolutely is a mitzvah Bizman Azeh. How come the Gdole HaChasidus didn't go? So he explains why. He says the the mitzvah bishleimus of living in Eretz Yisrael is if you're accomplishing something, you have a farm and you make uh, you make uh, fruits and vegetables, you're making highways, you're building houses, or you're teaching Torah, or uh, so on. You have to accomplish something. If the rebbe's would have moved to Eretz Yisrael, the Hasidim would still live behind in in Europe. They would support the Rebbe, they'd be thrilled to support the Rebbe, but the Rebbe wouldn't be accomplishing anything in Eretz Yisrael. He would be living in Eretz Yisrael. The mitzvah is Yeshivar, it's not Yeshiva Eretz Yisrael. Yeshivar means you're doing something to improve the country, to improve the economy, something. But just to live in Eretz Yisrael is an incomplete mitzvah. So he said that's why they chose to live behind in Chutzlarts. But Moshe Feinstein and Rabbi Soloveitchik both had an unusual opinion they they both thought that the mitzvah to live in Eretzah is what they call a mitzvah kiyumis, not a mitzvah chiyumis. It's not an obligation to live in Eretzah. If you live in Eretzah, you're being the kaima mitzvah. Like they quote from the Vilna Gun, 
that the Gemara said the first night of Pesach is a mitzvah to eat matzah, even if you don't enjoy it, even if you don't want to eat the matzah. But the rest of Pesach, it's a rishus. What does it mean in rishus? So the Vilna Goen is quoted as having said, if you eat matzah, you, have, you are fulfilling a mitzvah, but it's not obligatory. Others claim there is no such thing as a mitzvah or rishus. The word mitzvah means mitzvah, a commandment. So how can it be that there's an optional commandment? Either you're mechuyiv or you're not mechuyiv. But that's what they quote from the Vilna Gaon. There is such a thing as a mitzvah or a shus. The Rav Salvechik and Moshe Feinstein both thought that the mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael is not a mitzvah chiyubis you're not obligated to. If you live in Eretz Yisrael, you're being the kaima mitzvah. My impression is that most do not feel like that. Most assume that it is actually a mitzvah, an obligation. If all things are equal, if it's within reason, if you're going to move to Eretz Yisrael and you'll be miserable, so then there's a mitzvah, he fell in love, the fellow fell in love with a girl who doesn't want to move to Eretz Yisrael. So he has to live in Eretz Yisrael and, and have a broken heart. He won't marry the girl that he's in love with. Or he's crazy about learning in this certain yeshiva and chutzlars. He's a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael, but he wants to learn by this yeshiva and chutzlars. Umar says, Lulamatarvalisa Isha. He's going to be miserable if he moves to Eretz Yisrael, so that's not an option. Or let's say he'll live, he'll live in Eretz Yisrael, but he won't make a living. He'll be living off of charity, uh, off of um, the government gives that charity. If he lives in Chutzlarz, he'll have a medical practice or whatever. He'll be able to make a living. He lives in Eretz Yisrael, he won't be able to have a parnosa. So then there's no mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael. He's going to be miserable then. So whenever all things are equal, so then... It's not exactly equal. In Chutzlarz, you can make much more. and Eretz can make much less. I remember I was once uh, I was once going from, I was speaking in California for the OU. They used to have years ago, they used to have a whole week of Shurim between December 25th and January 1st. And then they changed it. Instead of a whole week of Shurim, they said a weekend. So they had a lot of Rabbanim came from the East Coast. So I remember when I was coming back after the week was over, so I was going from Los Angeles to Eretz Yisrael on an LL plane to visit the different yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael. So somebody from the business class went to the back to use the restroom. He looked very familiar from the yeshiva. So then when he went back to his seat uh, two, two minutes later, so he stops by me and he tells me, Hi, Rebbe Shalom Aleichem is in my shir uh, 20 years before this happened. So I say, what are you up to? He tells me uh, he's, he was a doctor in Los Angeles and he used to make... Uh, um, he used to make, I think, said two million dollars a year, something like uh, some astronomical number. I couldn't, I, I couldn't have a hasog of that. So he tells me that now he lives in Eretz Yisrael. He moved to Eretz Yisrael. He lives with his family there, and he only makes a half a million dollars a year. He lives in Savion, where all the poor people live, and uh, and he only makes a half a million dollars a year. And his wife can't you get used to living in poverty, so right. he had to go back to Los Angeles to get back his job in the hospital, he's going to have to move back to Chutzlotz because he's only making a half a million dollars a year. So that's ridiculous. It, not all things are equal. And I would tell you, you're not going to make $2 million a year. Right. Absolutely. So so when it comes to the mitzvah of Aliyah, are we talking there about... Mitzvah, there is a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael. The Tesis in the end Exubis writes that the mitzvah doesn't apply because it's Sakon Rachim. It's a sakana to travel to Eretz Yisrael. And it's difficult when you live in Israel, it's difficult to preserve the mitzvah satlis barats. The Abnei writes a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago, he says, there's no sakana's drachim today, and there's no difficulty in keeping the mitzvah satlis barats. He said, there's no, there's no excuse. Really, there's a mitzvah. We should all live in Eretz Yisrael. Everybody should really live in Eretz Yisrael. Which parts of Eretz Yisrael? So that's also a question. Teisus on the first page in Gitten assumes 
that the nature of the mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael is to be able to fulfill the mitzvah. So the, you're only in fulfillment of the mitzvah if you move to that part of Eretz Yisrael that was endowed with Kedusha the second time around in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So what, what would that exclude nowadays where we have Jews living? There are certain areas in the Beit Shan area, in the Beit Shan Valley, which the Gemara says uh, never was endowed with Kedusha the second time around. First time around it had Kedusha, the second time around it didn't. A lot would be excluded. I think the first time probably a lot was included. Second time around, the Yushiv didn't go that far down. Certain areas in Eretzel. But not the main, not, not the main area that people live in. Tesla's opinion is, and a few places, Tesla's opinion is that the mitzvah to live in Eretzel means to live in that part of Eretzel that has Kedusha Sa'oretz, so you will be able to fulfill the mitzvah, the agricultural mitzvahs. The Ritvo on the first page in Gittin questions the Taisus. He thinks that maybe there's a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael, whatever the borders of Eretz Yisrael are that are de- defined in the Chumash, not necessarily the part of the land that has Kedusha, even if it doesn't have Kedusha. There's a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael, Kalal Yisrael. The Jews who live in Eretz Yisrael constitute Kalal Yisrael, not the agricultural, the area that has Kedusha for agricultural purposes. The area that's that's a tziruf of Kalal Yisrael, the thing that unites, you're not called a nation unless you have a national homeland. So the national homeland is a secular uh, terminology, but the Ralokh is based on that assumption. National homeland of the Jewish people is Eretz Yisrael, so only those who live in Eretz Yisrael are part of that uh, tzibur. Of the Yishuv, of the Yishuv of Eretz Yisrael. Yeah. So and that's vis-a-vis somebody while alive, moving to Eretz Yisrael. What's the concept that we see nowadays, I don't remember it, a number of decades ago, of somebody passes away in Chutz Laaretz, was living in Chutz Laaretz. Is there an an Indian? Is there a mitzvah? Is there a benefit of being buried in Eretz Yisrael for someone who did not live in Eretz Yisrael? The Gemara has a comment on the concluding Pasuk and Shiraz Ha'azinu. The Pasuk says, the Pasuk Shat and the Pasuk says that there's going to be a Holocaust and it'll be such a dark period in Jewish history, people will ask, where was God when all of this was happening? If the God of the Jewish people is the God of the world, where was God when all of this was happening? The missionaries were very active during the Second World War. They said uh, Judaism can't be the true religion. Why would God allow all the Jews to be killed like that? There was a lot of missionary activity. So then the Pasuk says, after the Holocaust will be over, then it, then the concluding passing, the Shira Sazina says, admaso amo. So Rashi writes that the simple Pshuto Shalmikra, the simple translation of the Pasuk is, God will appease his land, Eretzel will have, uh, will become back again a Jewish place, and God will appease his nation. So many Jews were killed in the Second World War. I was born in the middle of the Second World War. After the war, they always said that 9 million Jews were killed. I think the number 6 million Jews, that's based on the records that the Nazis kept, names and addresses and the numbers that they tattooed on, on the people's arms. Those were the records that they kept, but there were many more. I think they said there were 9 million Jews killed by the Nazis. They didn't keep records on the extra ones. So the Torah says, V'chipah Admas God will appease his land. Eretz soil will be inhabited by the Jewish people. It's going to flourish. For so many years, it was desolate. The Pasuk and the Techeche writes, the Horitz, how does it say, the Horitz, the Yesh Mama. 
So Rashi quotes from the Tanoim, this is a blessing for the Jewish people. Calls man that the Jews weren't living in Eretz Yisrael. It was a desert land. It was marshlands. It was swampy. There were diseases there. It wasn't a safe place to live. Then when the Jews came back to Eretz Yisrael, everything is green. Everything grows. Everything is fantastic. Hevelaza, when it was under Jewish control, was beautiful. And then when the Jews moved out, now it's a desert. Now it's a other, before the, before the war, it was other, uh, other nothing. It was a waste. So the so the simple translation of the Pasuk is the Khipra Mosama God will appease his land and God will appease the Jewish people. Jewish people married and they multiplied and they became wealthy and they were never they never had so many people learning in yeshivas all over the world. Everything flourished after the Holocaust. Then the Gemara has an additional level of interpretation. And the Pasuk, the Chippa Admosoi Amoi, the Jewish people who live in Eretz Yisrael get a kapara. Whoever lives in Eretz Yisrael gets an atonement for his sins. And then the Gemara says, if you live there while you're alive, that's better. But even if you lived your whole life in Chutzlars, but you're buried in Eretz Yisrael, so you also get an atonement. For many years, the Minig was a very old Minig, that they would take sand from Eretz Yisrael, and they would take packets of sand to Chutzlars, and when a Jew would be buried in Chutzlars, they would put sand on parts of the body, as if you're burying him in Eretz Yisrael. Once you detach the sand from Eretz Yisrael, it's no longer, uh, no longer a part of Eretz Yisrael. But that was the minig. It's mentioned in Shulchan Aruch. They take offer from Eretz Yisrael and put it on top of the mason. So the Gemara says, Eina daimet cannot be compared. Koltosa lachamisa, the koltosa mechaim. If a person goes to Eretz Yisrael while he's alive and he lives there, then he gets a real mechilas avonis. V'chiparad mosaham, living in Eretz Yisrael gives you mechilas avonis. But uh, even if you're only buried in Eretzal after you die, also, it's not the same as if you would live there during your lifetime, but uh, it's also Madrega. The Munkach the was the main opposition to Zionism before the Second World War. So he has a very strong tshuva, and he says, the Ramam writes, you never get kapara unless you do tshuva. So he says, when Bezin gives you Malkus, you have to do tshuva. Otherwise, you don't get a kapor. When they give me says bezna, Mishnah says, say vidui. If you don't say vidui, you don't do tshuva. When you bring a korban, you have to say vidui. Uh, whenever a person, when you get uh, when you get kapor on Yom Kippur, so there's a machloikis hatanoim, and uh, and we paskan la'aloch is relevant, ha'aloch ha'lamais, not just the bezna shalmaila decides, relevant for the rabbonim to decide also sometimes whether Yom Kippur is mechaper, so the Rambam Paschal assumes Yom Kippur is not mechaper unless you do tshuva. If you don't do tshuva, Yom Kippur is not mechaper. So he says, when you're buried in Eretz when you go to Eretz Yisrael and you get in Mechilas Havainus, when you're alive or even buried, it's only if you do tshuva. If you don't do tshuva, it's not going to be mechaper. So he complains about the secular Zionists that they wanted to move to Eretz so They think they're going to get Mechilas Havainus, but they're not interested in doing any tshuva. He wanted, they wanted to establish a Medina to take the place of the religion. Now we won't have to observe the religion. We'll be Israelis. We'll be Jewish by definition. So we don't have to observe the mitzvahs once we live. So that's what he complains. They're not going to get any Mechilas Havainus. You only get Mechilas Havainus if you do tshuva. Right, that's a that's a big chiluk. That's very important. So, so to be buried in Eretz Yisrael, it's midin kapara. It's not a chiyuv. It's not a mitzvah. It's it's a kapara for somebody who was buried, who lived in Chutzarts and was buried in Eretz Yisrael. In a certain sense, there is a mitzvah of kavod abrius. Well, every human being has uh, tzalim alakim, and the Jewish people are considered bottom lamak. It means we have tzalim alakim square. We have an extra degree of tzalim alakim, like the children carry over the DNA from the parents. So we have Bonim Lamaka means more Tzalem Alakim 
than the other. So that's why there's a din of Kabar Abrius. And we have a din Kabar Abrius even applies Lachamisa. A coin is permitted and obligated to be metame to the seven relatives because of Kabar Abrius. It's a mitzvah of Kabar Abrius. So the Gemara says, it's a, in a certain sense, it's a higher degree of Kabar Abrius to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. Why so? So the Gemara has a tradition that at the time of Tchiyas HaMesim, Tchiyas HaMesim will only take place in Eretz Yisrael. So what about all the people who are buried in Chutzlah? So they're going to have to roll under the ground. That's what the literal translation of the word is going to be Gilgal Atzamas. They'll have to roll under the ground until they get there. So then they'll be able to have Tchiyas HaMesim. So if you want to save the Mesim from having to have that Bizoyan, before the Tchiyas HaMesim, so best is to bury him in the first place in Eretz Yisrael. So it's considered a bigger Kavar HaMes. There is a mitzvah to give Kavar HaBriyas. Kavar HaChayim is more important than Kavar HaMesim. The Gemara says whenever there's a conflict between Kavar HaChayim and Kavar HaMesim, Kavar HaChayim takes precedence. We even have a mitzvah of Kavar HaMesim. The part of Kavar HaMesim is to say a proper eulogy and to, to make a Kavar Kvura. So part of Kavar HaMesim is to bury an Eretz Yisrael as opposed to Chutz Lawrence. But if you cost a fortune of money, I always think it's a bigger mitzvah to give the money to Aniyim, to give the money to Yeshivas, to support the Torah, rather than spending a fortune of money to bring the Mesim to Eretz Yisrael. No, no. Based on that rationale of Gilgal Atzamos, is there going to be a preference of where to be buried in Eretz Yisrael? For example... Har Hazesim versus Har Menuchos, or Har Menuchos versus Beit Shemesh. Are there going to be priorities and where to be buried, or is it does it doesn't not matter if it's just if the pasuk is is a kapara from the Adama, the Adama includes all of Eretz Yisrael. I would think that it includes all of Eretz Yisrael, but I don't know why people assume that the closer you are to the Makam Amigdash, if you're facing the Makam Amigdash, so you stand a better chance of having. Um, uh, better Tchiyas HaMais. Must be based on Midrashim. I'm not familiar. I guess it's close enough wherever you are within the halachic borders of Eretz Yisrael. Yeah. And one last question. Exhuming a body that was buried in Chutz Laaretz to be moved to Eretz Yisrael. Is that also Medin Kapara? Is that also Kavad HaMais? Once it's been buried already, would we say that the Kavad HaMais stopped or is there a Dean of Kavad HaMais still to exhume the body and move it to Eretz Yisrael? The Talmud Yerushalmi quotes Amoroyim from Eretz Yisrael, who were not happy about the practice of the Achachamim and Bovel to bring the Mesim to bury in Eretz Yisrael. So they used to complain, quoting the Posse Gnavi, they bring all the Mesim to Eretz Yisrael to bring Tuma. I live in the Broyer's community in Washington Heights, so they say Rabbi Broyer was always quoted that Posse he was not happy with this practice of moving, exhuming bodies to move to Eretz Yisrael. But the accepted Pesach and Shulchan Aruch is that it's considered Kavan HaMais. We usually do not permit exhuming a body to bury somewhere else unless uh, unless the first cemetery is a Mokka Mavuza. Let's say uh, gangsters or uh, hoodlums are, uh, are uh, drinking, uh, having beer parties in the cemetery. Or the cemetery became swampy. And it's a, it's a disgusting location to be buried. Or if you want to move a mace to Eretz Yisrael, so that's more Bikovadik for the mace. So you want to bury the mace in Kivri Abosa, where the rest of the family is buried. 
It was originally buried somewhere else, and now you want to exhume the body to move him to Kibriyavah. So that's that's considered permissible. To move there, it's also assumed to be that it is Mutta in Shulchan Arach. The Chachmei weren't so keen about it. They didn't like it. But the Chachmei Bovel uh, say it is Mutta. Mutter and preferred or just Mutter? Preferred, yeah, but uh, if it's going to cost a fortune of money, so the question is, is it really worth it? Is it really right to do that? As opposed so if to you doing it. If, if you have tzaddikim who are buried in Chutzlaritz, and now there are no Jews who live there, and communist Russia or something, there are no Jews there. Or it's a Mokam there, Germany. So then they move the bodies to Ritzisam. But if you have Jewish people are buried here in America, so to spend the fortune and money to move them there, so that money can help Aniyim and Yeshivas. I right. think it's a mitzvah to give the money to Tzedakah. Very good. Rav Shachta, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We've covered a lot of ground and learned many halachas. It's been very fascinating. I want to really thank you for joining us here today. Very good. Have Tzedakah. Amen. Thank you. Joining us now is Professor Eugene Kantorovich. Professor Kantorovich is one of the world's preeminent experts on international law and the Israel-Arab conflict. He has published numerous scholarly articles and is quoted by and interviewed by major news organizations such as the Wall Street Journal, NPR News, The New Yorker, Los Angeles Times. I am intentionally leaving off the New York Times, Yamach Shaman, and in addition, numerous other television programs, radio programs, and the like, and even speaks at shuls as well. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Professor, what we hear so often nowadays when watching the news is, this is against international law. International requires this. International requires that. The Israelis are again violating international law, and that's said so much more often than Hamas. violating international law, ironically. So the question, and maybe this can set the table for our whole conversation, is what is international law? What does that mean? Where does it come from? Who made it up? Uh, It's a good question. It's a big question and a question international lawyers also ask. When I teach my class, Introductory International Law, we spend the first three weeks just on what is international law? Is it really law? And so international law is basically a set of rules that governs countries. The question is, Where does it come from? Because there is no international parliament or legislature that just makes laws. Um, The UN is not an international legislature. They don't have lawmaking power. There is no international courts of general jurisdiction that just have jurisdiction over cases. Uh, There is a court in The Hague, but countries have to agree to take their disputes there. So where does this law come from? And the answer is simple and circular. Countries are the top-level objects in international law, and there's nothing above them. So in domestic law, there's people, and there's the country, the sovereign above them. But there's no sovereign above countries. And in other words, a country can force people to go to court, but if there's nobody above the countries, no one can force the countries. And there's no one to make the rules. There's no legislation. And no one to enforce. Even if we have international law, there's no one to enforce it? Enforcement's a separate question. But let's just say the rules themselves. Where do the rules come from? So the theory of international law is international law is the rules that have their power by virtue of the countries having agreed to them themselves. A country can only be bound by rules to which it has agreed in advance. Now, that agreement is considered kind of binding and is valid until revoked. So how do countries bind themselves to agree to rules? The basic way is treaties, which are like contracts. So countries sign agreements, either between two countries or more. Um, In the case of the laws of war, the most important treaty is the Geneva Conventions of 1949. And those rules 
the country has to follow until it decides to quit the treaty, which it can also do. Now, if a country is a member of the United Nations, does that mean that they have to adhere to international law, or, or is that the United Nations is itself a treaty which has certain rules, but they're relatively limited and don't address the situation in any detail. They're mostly about the powers of the United Nations. So there's you know there's no particular. You have to listen to certain decisions of the United Nations that are not relevant in this context. So in in the world, we have a couple hundred countries, something like that. Hundred ninety. Hundred ninety three today. Maybe by tomorrow it'll change. And some of them are then bound by international law, and some aren't. Well, you can let's say if they all sign the same treaty, which sometimes happens, then they're all bound by the same rule. By that, if some John, yeah, if some, yes, but they're not all necessarily bound by the same rules. There are broad treaties that pretty much every country has signed, and the Geneva Conventions and the UN Charter are examples of that. Another way countries can bind themselves is custom, which is. Uh, you know, so minhag can be binding, but the custom has to not just be like occasional usage. It has to be universal and done out of a sense of legal obligation, which means you're doing it not just because it's convenient. So lots of things countries do, you know, like the ambassadors are called your excellency. So that does not become a law. Din, even though everyone does it, they do it just for convenience courtesy. or courtesy. So, there, but it used to be more international law came from custom. Today, there's, and custom has to be really universal. It's hard to establish custom. So today, if you want to make a rule of international law, if you say custom, it's probably suspicious because rules that countries truly want to make are going to be treaties today because it's really easy to get together and make a treaty. And, you know, diplomats love to get together in Bern, in Geneva, in The Hague. They never get together in, like, Scarsdale um, to make these treaties at Paris and places like this. But uh, it used to be harder to do that. So there was more custom. But in the 20th century, second half of the 20th century, certainly, treaties dominate. Okay, so let's get to the next step. When talking about international law, let's talk about a specific area, which is the topic of our show today, is the making of borders between mm -hmm. countries, because we're going to have to get into detail on that, especially as it applies to Israel. So what's the international law regarding how the borders of countries are determined? Right. So there's not a treaty about that, but there is, in fact, a custom, and it's a custom that is very, very robust. And the reason the custom is robust is because the situation arises quite often. We mentioned there were 100, there are 193 countries today. When the United Nations was created in 1945, there were 50 some countries. So the number of countries has you know almost quadrupled um, over the over the 20th century. So this is a common question. It's not yet yeah, the creation of a new country is not a unusual occurrence. Um, and there's actually a fair amount of cases about this. Because while international courts don't have general jurisdiction, numerous countries have agreed to take border disputes to various tribunals, and those tribunals have made various decisions. And there is a general rule about the borders of countries. If you were to look up in a sort of international law casebook or handbook or dictionary, it will say this is how international law borders are, international borders are determined, period. So this is not an exotic or unique posi uh, position. This is sort of black letter law. The rule is called uti possidetis juris, which is a <laughs> which is a complicated way of uh, of saying that the when you have a new country, when, as opposed to the government, a new government for an existing country, which is a different situation, change of regime. We're talking about a country that is new. So, if the country is new, how did it come to be new? There was something there before, and either it was part of a you know a territory of an empire, it was maybe a part of a federal system like the United States, Canada, federal systems. Um, it was maybe, um, it uh, was maybe part of some uh, other kind of, other kind of entity, colonial possession, imperial possession, uh, protector, 
that now has assumed sovereign status. So the rule is the borders of that new thing, the country, are the borders of the last top-level administrative unit in that territory before independence. And other borders continue. It is the it is the persist, admin, administrative borders of whatever was there before an empire, a colony, a protector become national sovereign borders. And uh, I can give you some examples. What do we mean by a top-level administrative unit? So in the United States, that means a state. In Canada, it means a province. Uh, in Germany, it means a land. In the Soviet Union, which is a good example because it dissolved, the Soviet Union was called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And it was made up of 16 republics, so-called. The borders of each of those republics, at the moment of independence, become the borders of the new countries. And here's the crucial part of this rule. This rule is designed to make the determination of borders immediate, instantaneous, and easy, and to depend only on one factor. Because if you have a more than one factor test, then there's going to be disagreements that's going to be hard to tell. You know, if it's like, on one hand, previous political borders, on the other hand, demographics. Those might contradict each other. And then there's going to be war. So you want a simple simple test, because if countries can't agree on borders, they're going to have a war. So what's important is this principle is the one-factor test, and it overrides any other questions like demographics, history, uh, self-determination, etc. So let me give you an example. Take Crimea, as Vladimir Putin did in 2014. Uh, the Crimea was part of the part of the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic because it had been part of the Russian Empire, and it was part of the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic until the 1950s. Nikita Khrushchev, the General Secretary of the Soviet Union, of the Politburo, redrew the internal borders and gave Crimea to Ukraine. It didn't really matter to anyone back then. Because everyone one country. It was one country and everyone was governed dictatorially from the Kremlin in Moscow anyway. Nonetheless, it was administratively part of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. When Ukraine became independent, Ukraine says Crimea is ours. Even though the people there mostly were not Ukrainians, did not speak Ukrainian, had, you know, the area had been part of Russia forever, with one brief intermission, and it only became part of Crimea through perhaps the least democratic method conceivable, without any consultation of the people. Nonetheless, so what, so what I'm important says, that's no fair. So what about self-determination? Like we hear about Palestinian self-determination, says Crimean self-determination. Crimeans are not, you know, should not be part of Ukraine, they're not Ukrainians. The international community universally rejects that position. Because of the one-factor test? Because of the uti potidetis principle. And pick your favorite new country, you will see this is how its borders were made. It doesn't, and often those borders are colonial borders. They're going to be borders made by some empire, arbitrary, but nonetheless better arbitrary than redraw, because if it's like demographics, oh, there's this ethnic group here that doesn't want to be part of the new country, then no country, we think we have a, you know, Arab minority, it's unusual, they're unhappy, every country has a minority, and that minority is typically not a happy minority, and then within the minority, there could be a minority, so there's, an, let's say there's an area where there's mostly Arabs, call it, uh, you know, Shamron. But then, so let's say they get, they get a new country, but wait, did the Jews there who want their own country get a new country too? So it's infinite regress. So this is why we have this one-factor test. And over and over, just, uh, for example, just this year, we saw um, a situation legally almost identical to Israel. You know, people often ask me, if, this, if, if you're so correct in this theory, you know, why does the international community disagree with you? And I said, they do not disagree with me. They completely agree with me. With everything and, except Israel. If, if we don't know the identity of the country, they agree with me. I'll give you, and I'll give you an example. Legally, factually identical, uh, there were two countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan, that were part of the Soviet Union. Armenia is a Christian country, Azerbaijan is a Muslim country. Uh, there was an area that was within the borders of Azerbaijan that had a special autonomous status, and 
was, had a mostly Armenian and historically Armenian population called Nagorno-Karabakh. As it became clear the Soviet Union was collapsing and the countries were going to declare independence, they had a fight, a war over this area, and Armenia won. So Armenia took territory, which had a mostly Armenian population, and uh, was though inside, sort of, just inside, Azerbaijan. And Armenia held that territory for um, several decades. Now, of course, nobody particularly accused Armenia of being an occupier, though technically it was. Nonetheless, so 30 years later, this year, Azerbaijan attacks this territory, Nagorno-Karabakh, and kicks out all the Armenians and completely takes it over. No one has said that Armenia is an occupying power, is an illegal occupier, is illegally using force, because even though it took over a territory that it has not controlled since its independence, that contains zero Azerbaijanis, because the Armenians kicked them all out, has been always primarily Azerbaijani and historically Azerbaijani. Nonetheless, it was within the borders of the Republic of of the Soviet Socialist Republic of Azerbaijan at the moment of independence, and now they can even go to war and expel all the people in order to get it back. Let, let's talk in general about Israel, and also if you can walk us through the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and also the Golan Heights. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the question is, Israel becomes independent in 1948. What was, at the moment of its independence, the borders? And we apply what we call the birthday test, the borders at the moment, one minute before independence. Everyone would agree the previous entity there was the ma- Mandate of Palestine, the League of Nations Mandate of Palestine. And if you were to ask anyone in April 1948, what is the borders of Palestine? It was uncontroversial. It was the area that we would now recall, recall, refer to as Israel, Aza, and Yehuda Shimron. There was no separate area of Yehuda Shimon. It was a single unified entity called Palestine. From the river to the sea. Yeah, yes. From the, indeed, it was actually, the border was drawn specifically at the river. It used to extend beyond the river, but there was an option in the League of Nations mandate for Britain to split it off at the river and create a separate Arab state on the other side. They did, called Jordan. And just as nobody ever doubts Jordan's boundaries, why does no one ever j- doubt the j- borders of Jordan, even though it has that weird arm sticking into Iraq, uh, so, 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 because it so was created by the mandate. Israel and Jordan, Transjordan, were created effectively at the same time? Um, th- there was a difference in time, but from the same legal basis. So, so same, okay, and and Israel, for when we're talking about from the river to the sea, the river is the Jordan, Jordan River, yes. and to the sea is the Mediterranean Sea. Exactly, and including Aza and Yehud uh, Shimon, which were not seen as separate regions. Okay, so the, the birthday test, Israel includes the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Yes. Okay. And of course, Jerusalem. And Yerushalayim whole, the entire, even East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights? No. Not the Golan Heights. The lower slopes of the Golan Heights. Uh, But I want to get back to the Golan Heights. So, okay, so Israel is attacked by these Arab armies, and they occupy some of this territory. They occupy Gaza Strip and the West Bank. The West Bank is really created by Jordanian occupation. That term did not exist. Jordan simply named the area in Israel that they occupied, the West Bank. Um, the, and the Egyptians occupied Aza. So the, at this point, you have territory that belongs to Israel by this test. Birthday the, test. Birthday birthday test. test. By the Utipadadatis principle that has been occupied by two foreign countries. So when Israel kicks at the mount 19 years later, it is simply retaking its own territory to which it has sovereign title, much as like when Azerbaijan kicked out Armenia, from Karabakh, no one doubted its title, and much like if Ukraine next year has a miracle of God worked for them, and they kick the Russians out of Crimea, no one's going to say, oh, wait, you're taking it from the Russians. No, you're taking back your own territory. Now, Gaza now may have a different status, because in 2005, Israel left completely, and that leaving could be seen as a waiver and abandonment 
of sovereignty. In 2005. Yes. And if you repossess, is there a change in that? Well, if it had become an independent country, then repossessing could raise a particular issue. But Gaza has not become an independent state. They could have. They did not want to. Palestinian positions, we don't want a state anywhere until we can have a state everywhere. So now it is a non-sovereign territory, and Israel can, in fact, repossess it and take sovereign title. It's not clear that they want to. Maybe they want to in parts or not parts. That's not entirely not clear what the position of the government is. But certainly Israel is not intruding on the sovereignty of any state by its operations in Gaza, or if it were to choose to stay permanently in Gaza. Now, from 2005, when Israel and every Jew left the mm-hmm. Gaza Strip. What's been their relationship between the two? Has has mm-hmm. the Gaza Strip effectively had sovereignty making its mm-hmm. own decisions? They've, not, they've had a government, which has not been a sovereign government, but uh, they've had a de facto regime called Hamas, which is the government. And they've been independent. Israel's not been making the decisions. Have the, they been able to import food, import whatever they ab- desire? Not whatever they desire, because Israel, when they attacked Israel, when Hamas took power in 2007, uh, kicking out Fatah, they began shooting rockets at Israel. So Israel imposed a blockade. Now, blockade so, yeah, means... Restricting the entry of goods, which is a law, legal tactic of war. Basically, ever since Israel left Gaza, it has been at war with Gaza. So that means there are limited things that cannot be brought put in, the things that are viewed as a threat. Israel has tried to, but as the current war shows, it has not done a very good job. No, it hasn't. I, I can't imagine how much cement was used. But that's because Israel, it's not a complete blockade. Remember, they have a border with Egypt, and the Egyptian border is very porous and has a lot of smuggling. Right. Right. Okay. And, and, and just a, a detailed question. I'm just uh, curious about this. Israel collects taxes and gives the water over, sells water and fuel and the like to Gaza. Why did that happen? Um, just because they were incapable. Bad of habits. No, they, they, you know, they, they can make water. They have a desalinization plant with all the money they spent on missiles. They could have built five desalinization plants, but they didn't. So they're like, oh, we need water. So Israel says, we'll sell you some. But except, I, you, I wouldn't call it selling because they've never actually paid. They don't pay the bill. We're giving them free water. Same with the electricity. Oh, boy. Now, we collect taxes on uh, basically their customs duties on products that go through our ports destined to Gaza. So if they import things, they, they, they don't have a port, so they come through us. That's a normal arrangement. Lots of countries that don't have ports import through some other country and have that country collect the customs from them. And does Israel deduct the water cost? We don't deduct the water, generally. So it's free. But, but we, we do deduct. It's a tax on Israelis, basically. Israelis pay. We, we for pay for the yes. Gaza. Yes. Now, we've suspended some of that during the war, but I think one of the things that's becoming clear is the government has taken a position that after this war, you're on your own. <laughs> okay, that'll be better. Uh, so, a Palestinian state, was there ever a Palestinian state before 1948, or did that... There has never been a Palestinian state uh, any. So, wh- where did that concept come from, that <laughs> Israel was occupying and the Palestinian state and the like? Where, where, where does that come from? Um, where, where does it come from? So the uh, Palestinian National Movement emerged in Jordan in the 1960s, and uh, the they tried to gain overthrow the Jordanian monarchy. The Jordanian monarchy viciously put them down, so they turned their attention elsewhere. But also, it's a very common Arab attack. What they first did in 1948 was they tried to destroy Israel with five big Arab armies. In which, and then right, they were not talking about a Palestinian state in 1948. They were talking about splitting it amongst themselves. But then, after 1948, they decided to turn to failing with aggression to try to turn to victim language. And this is the language of occupation and so forth after 1967. Let, let me ask you a, a personal question. Yes. What do you think should be done with the Gaza Strip? 
It's a complicated question, and I think it's premature to address because uh, it depends truly on the outcome of the war. The greater Israel's victory, not just in Gaza, but also depending on what happens in the north and Hezbollah, the greater its room for flexibility. But I think it's easy to see what shouldn't happen. Obviously, Hamas cannot be allowed to rule. Fatah, the other main party, should not be allowed to rule because it's no better than Hamas, as I described in an article in the Wall Street Journal last uh, week. Other than their pay for slay program, uh, they also actually were, had Fatah members, were on the ground participating in the October 7th massacres, actions that were subsequently praised by official Palestinian authority uh, people and media. So they are no better than Hamas, though, like a junior varsity Hamas. And indeed, they actually ruled Gaza for a couple of years after Israel left until Hamas knocked them over. So Fatah would only be a way station. International peacekeepers, completely ineffective. We see this in Lebanon, where there's a whole UN force that's supposed to have disarmed Hezbollah 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and has completely failed. In fact, they become human shields for the terrorists. So no international presence. Israel, the only security in Gaza can, must come from Israel, and the only armed force in Gaza must be uh, an Israeli armed force. That is clear, and uh, nor can it become part of a Palestinian state sandwiching Israel. Uh, so, so those are the no's. What are the, the yeses are more complicated. I think it's important that Israel take at least some of the territory of Gaza and annex it, both for security purposes as a buffer zone, and also to revoke the Palestinian insurance policy. What is the Palestinian insurance policy? It is that no matter how many wars they start, they get the territory that they started with back. Right? You can you can lose and lose and lose. You always go. You always start with the number of chips you came in with. So we we fought. Well, you know, we Israel took Gaza in 1956 from Egypt. It took it in 1967. We went in 2014, and we've had many smaller wars ever since. But this notion that President Biden has advocated no diminishment of territory. It tells them that, you know, they may lose a lot of people. They don't necessarily care about that, the decision makers. Afterwards, they're going to be a wash in European reconstruction aid. So maybe it like, works out for the people who call the shots. I'm not saying for the people of Gaza. The, to, to truly have victory, your enemy needs to lose. And that means you need to look at their objective. Their objective is to make areas in an, uninhabitable by Jews. They wanted to make at least the south of Israel uninhabited by Jews. So we need to do the opposite, which is to create an area that, which is to increase the territory inhabited by Jews. Right, right. Mida Kanega Mida. So bottom line, bottom line, who owns Israel legally, international law, including West Bank and the Gaza Strip, and then we shall stop out, talk about the Golan Heights. Yeah, so uh, Israel clearly has full sovereignty over the areas of Israel and Yehuda Vashemron, Judea and Samaria, and the, the West Bank. Gaza. I don't think there is a sovereign in Gaza. I think Gaza is is a is a case of unfulfilled sovereignty. So it's up for the taking. It, it, it is in some sense up for grabs. Um, I wouldn't say grabs, but its sovereignty has not been finalized. Um, and Israel could make a sovereign claim based on defensive conquest, at least. So what is defensive conquest? You're, it is illegal in international law to attack countries and take their territory. To use war, illegal war, as a as a method of territorial aggrandizement. But not all war is illegal. Indeed, the UN Charter, going back to that treaty, in Article 51, says that self-defense is an inherent right of countries. Inherent right. Even has nothing to do with the UN Charter. Clearly, this is a war of self-defense. Six-day war was also clear war of self-defense. It was surrounded by hostile Arab countries intent on eliminating. Israel took the Golan Heights from Syria in a defensive war. Right? Not a war of, of choice. Uh, the timing was a matter of choice, but not, not the war itself. 
Um, it had been constantly used since 1948 as a, as a base to shell the kibbutzim of the Galil. Those places were largely uninhabitable. It was very, you know, they had like hardy pioneers there because normal people couldn't live there. They had real kibbutzim. It was people were being shot in the kibbutzim there all the time. So that is a basis for changing the borders because you used war, but not illegal war. And otherwise, there's no deterrent for aggression. As I mentioned before, the aggressor can't always at least break even. And because there's no enforcement mechanism in international laws, we mentioned, there's no international police that's going to come and ding you, fine you, for starting illegal wars, the only hope for deterrence is some potential border modifications, which should be aligned with security needs, as the Golan Heights says, right? They didn't just take Syria. They took uh, the area of Syria that, that was necessary. That was threatening to, to Israel, that overlooked Israel. Happens to be beautiful up there as well. Yes. Professor, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been a tremendous education, and I, I'm glad that we came out as we did, that... Uh, Israel is Israel. Israel has its borders. And since 1948, inclusive of the Gaza Strip and Mir Tzashem, and uh, well, we'll leave that for the politicians and inclusive, certainly of the West Bank. And we have a strong claim to the Golan Heights as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Joining us now is Dr. Henry Abramson. Dr. Abramson is a historian who is a dean of Turo University. He is especially well known for his teachings on Jewish history. And in addition, he has a very popular YouTube channel with over 11 million views. And he's also working on a three-volume work on the history of the Jews. Dr. Abramson, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Why don't we start out with a definition or a couple definitions, related definitions. We'll be talking a lot about Palestine and Palestinians. So if you could tell us where do those words come from? When did it start? That would be terrific. Sure. And, and names are power and they're used with a tremendous amount of uh, force in contemporary debate. So it's important we have a sense of the denotation as opposed to just the connotation. Uh, the term Palestine is of Roman coinage. After the Bar Kokhba revolt in the year 135, from 132 to 135, uh, the Romans wanted to do everything possible to wipe out the memory of the Jews who had rebelled against them three times by that uh, event. Uh, the uh, Great Revolt of 66 to 73 that saw the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, then the Kitos Rebellion, and then finally the Bar Kokhba revolt. So one of the things that Emperor Hadrian did was he actually changed the important names of the region. Uh, Yerushalayim was renamed Isla Capitolina, after himself actually, and Judea was renamed Palestina, joined also to Syria, Palestina Syria, or Syria Palestina. He chose that term, which actually had been used earlier by a Greek historian named Herodotus to describe the Phoenicians who had settled on the coastline, which in itself was a modern or a Greek term of the word Pelishtim, the Philistines. So ironically and intentionally, the Romans renamed Judea after their understanding of the early enemies of the ancient Jewish people. 
So that's when the term comes into parlance in the second century of the Common Era, and it's widely used by Jews as well. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that the Yerushalmi is called the Palestinian Talmud by uh, a lot of scholars for a long time. So that term Palestine is used to describe a region. Uh, eventually, the Muslims would call it Philistine from this term Palestine, but it really refers only to a region, and it is a Roman renaming, a usurpation of the term Judea. And so it has nothing to do with the Palestinians that are currently in the land, at least the original generation of, of the name, because I know that before it was called the Jerusalem Coast, it was actually called the Palestine Coast, and that was owned by Jews. Yes, the term Palestinian was basically a regional description. Uh, the people who lived there would use that in the same way that, let's say, someone who lives in New York or New Jersey or Connecticut might say they come from the Northeast or from the tri-state region uh, without necessarily having a specific tag to their religious or their national identity. By the time you get to the early 20th century, however, Arabs in the region are increasingly using it. Uh, there is a, an important newspaper called Filastin, which was the Arabic word for Palestine. Uh, and it really becomes a pronounced national identity in the 1960s uh, with the advent of the Palestine Liberation Organization. Right. So so let, let's uh, continue on that, on that vein. If we talk about the Jewish nation and the claim to the land, because that's what we want to focus on today is land ownership and and claims of the Jews versus the Palestinians. What would you say is the earliest Jewish claim to the land of Israel? Uh, certainly, the Jewish people have the oldest continuous connection to that land. We have uh, not only the sources in Tanakh, but lots of archaeological evidence going back to the 13th century before the Common Era that clearly demonstrate that the ancestors of the Jewish people, sometimes called Israelites or Hebrews or what have you, they lived in this region. So they certainly have a historical connection. They also have a continuous connection because uh, unlike, you know, what is commonly discussed in popular discourse, the Jews were never completely exiled from their land. Uh, not the Babylonian exile, not the exile under the Assyrians, and not even the Roman exile represented the complete depopulation of Jews from the land of Israel. There were a lot of shifts, as I mentioned earlier, when Hadrian tried to wipe out the Jewish presence there, he banned all Jews from living in Jerusalem itself, but there was still a very significant population in the Galilee region, where, of course, the, the Talmud was ultimately developed, the Jerusalem Talmud, or the Palestinian Talmud, if you like. So, so Jews have a claim historically, they have a, a claim to continuous presence. Uh, there's also some other related terms, like the fact that like, they always consider Jerusalem their capital, not some other city outside of the region, like let's say in Turkey or in Egypt. And um, then you have going to the modern era, if we skip way ahead, uh, you know, Jews bought land. They legally purchased land in the land of Israel with deeds and all those, you know, modern appurtenances of transactions. Uh, and it's you know, the Palestinians will counter, by the way, that those many of those lands were sold by absentee landlords who really didn't care about the local population. And there's a lot of truth to that. But nevertheless, the land was purchased and you purchase it from the person who actually legally owns it. And when you move past the land purchase, then you have uh, whatever claims are appropriate for conquest. I mean, countries go to war, countries conquer territories, and countries keep those territories. So those are, I think, the, the basic arguments for Israeli claims to the land. 
And if we talk about Palestinian claims to the land, and and this is maybe a little bit choppy, choppy. we're talking about Palestinians of today, and maybe those weren't the original people. So how, how do we work through that concept of Palestinian claims, the people who exist today in the land of Israel, what's their initial claim to the land? That's a, an excellent question, and it really gets to the crux of the debate between Israelis and Palestinians. You see, uh, you know, unless we all agree, Jews, Israelis, Palestinians, you know, the international community, unless we all agree on a common system for deriving truth and for arriving at, you know, the uh, adjudication of claims, we'll just be arguing in circles. Like for the Jews to say, well, it says here in Tanakh that, that you know, God gave us this land, that may be hugely important for Jews and for Christians as well, who regard the Tanakh as valid, but there's no reason that Muslims would necessarily accept it for their theology. So if we, on a philosophical level, set aside those kind of claims, you know, basically you can't go back centuries to validate either side. You have to go really to the 19th century when we begin to have these legal transactions. And Palestinians will claim, first of all, that they were dispossessed, sometimes by themselves, by their by other Arabs who owned the lands. Sometimes they were betrayed by the neighboring states, like the newly created Jordan or Egypt or Syria or what have you. And so therefore the land was taken from them and they were the indigenous people at that point. And then, of course, there's the most important argument that they bring to the table, which is what they call the Nakba the catastrophe, which is, uh, you know, the the confluence of events surrounding the establishment of the state of Israel, in which there were a lot of good reasons for peace-loving Arabic families to simply say, we must leave this territory. At the end of the day, you have a large number of Arabs who fled what would become the 1949 armistice boundaries of Israel. They're living in neighboring regions in refugee camps, uh, and uh, and they argue that they were driven from their land. Uh, they have a lot of good arguments for that. Uh, very few of them were allowed to return after 1949 for obvious reasons. Um, and of course, there's a sort of massive tit for tat in that a lot of Arab countries surrounding Israel then begin to persecute and ultimately expel roughly the same amount of Jews from the surrounding Arab countries. So you have this huge mess, huge number of displaced peoples in the in the range of 1.6 million people, if you conclude both the Arabs and the Nakba and the, the Jews from uh, Arab and Muslim states. And uh, Israel was able to successfully absorb the migrants from Iraq and Iran and Syria and Morocco and what have you, uh, whereas the Palestinians largely remained in refugee camps for decades. Because no one wanted to take them in. So good argument. Why exactly were the Palestinians still in refugee camps? You know, this there's a lot of polemic involved in this as well. Uh, ironically, the United Nations set up a dedicated institution that sort of guaranteed that many of them would remain in refugee camps because, you know, they have all kinds of services provided to them by the United Nations. And in those regions where they, um, you know, strove 
legitimately or otherwise for greater liberties, for citizenship, they are often put down by the autocratic governments in place. Jordan, for example, which has a massive Palestinian population, endured an uprising in 1970 where the Palestinian movement tried to take over the country and the PLO as a result was driven out. Similarly, they're driven out of Syria and Lebanon until the PLO itself had no contiguous border with Israel as a state. Interesting. So let's just take a step back and and talk about the Ottoman Empire, something I remember from many years ago learning about it, but I've forgotten all of my Jewish history. So walk us through what was the Ottoman Empire? What was the status of Palestine then? Did it exist in an independent country? Ultimately, we want to get it to the formation of Israel-Palestine to understand what the government was. Was there a Palestine by Arabs before Israel was declared and about the private ownership of property? So let's just talk on a very high level because ultimately we want to get to today. But I think it's probably important just to have a concept of what the Ottoman Empire was. Sure. So uh, I'll give you the uh, the nickel tour. We'll do this really fast. Uh, basically, uh, Islam expands throughout the entire region beginning in the 7th century. And then over the succeeding centuries, it it breaks up into several empires. One of the biggest of them was the Ottoman Empire, which was based in Turkey, that controlled much of the eastern Mediterranean right up until World War I. For a variety of reasons, you know, they, they began to lose control. They were called by some the sick man of Europe, and everybody knew that this massive thing was going to fall apart in World War I. The region of Israel was part of the Ottoman Empire. It was not a distinct part. In fact, when it was divided up administratively, it was divided in half. Uh, Jerusalem also always had very great significance for Muslims, but uh, Palestine as like a political entity certainly did not exist. Um, although later on in the 20th century, many Palestinians would look back to that with, as sort of like a golden age where Jews, Muslims, and Arabs, uh, Jews, Muslims, and Christians all got along together. At any rate, what happens in World War One is that the imperialist powers of the West, England and France in particular, they see the Ottoman Empire about to collapse, and they look at it somewhat greedily uh, as a way of enriching their colonial empires. And so they basically take out rulers and they sit down having big cigars and brandies and talk about how they can divide up this territory after the Ottoman Empire collapses. As a result of a lot of important Jewish lobbying, uh, the British, who had a strong philo-Semitic uh, sort of strand in their uh, political thought, uh, they agreed in 1917 in the Balfour Declaration to say, you know what, we're going to save a little part of this for the Jewish people as a national homeland for the Jewish people, which was cause of great celebration among Jews worldwide, but of course, tremendous consternation in the region of Palestine uh, among the Arabs. And in fact, shortly after that declaration, you begin to see the very beginnings of violence uh, between Arabs in the region and uh, Jews. Of course. That, that, so the Balfour Declaration was by England. Yes. And it said we will be giving property to the Jews and did not mention the quote-unquote Palestinians or whatever they were called at that time living in the land. Uh, well, not exactly. The, the Let's not forget that when they said this, they didn't actually control the land either, but they anticipated it falling into their lap. And uh, Balfour said that His Majesty's government view with favor this potential future idea, 
Um, and also, they didn't, no one used the term Palestinian then really to refer to the people, but they said, understanding that there will be no prejudice directed against the indigenous peoples. That's not the exact phrase. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, but basically saying, we're going to give this land to the Jews for their national homeland, as long as, you know, the people in place don't mind too much. The British were kind of typically speaking out of both sides of their mouth at once. Um, and of course, it was inevitable that this was not going to work out because the uh, Arabs protested early on against the the idea of taking away some of what is called Darul Islam, the the region of Islam and giving it to Darul Harb, which means the region of the sword or non-Muslims regions. This is a, a basic theological concept in Islam that once a territory becomes Muslim, it should never go back to being not Muslim anymore. So there's a strong theological opposition to it. There is a political opposition because the Palestinians are beginning to get some sense of national identity. Uh, and there is an economic uh, opposition to it because they see that with increased Jewish emigration, uh, it's changing the economy significantly. Uh, on a material level, as the Peel Commission would note a couple decades later, the Jews brought tremendous wealth to the region, lots of foreign investment, lots more jobs, lots more economic activity. But on the other hand, uh, there's concentrations of this definitely favoring the Jewish settlements. So a lot of Arabs were beginning to say, hey, what's going on here? This territory is being taken away from us. The economy is changing. We're beginning to be shunted into lower class work. And all those arguments are essentially valid. Right. So so that was the Balfour Declaration. It sounds like it didn't have legal teeth because Britain wasn't even in control of the land at that point. But then a few years later, we have the British Mandate. So walk us through what's the British Mandate? What did that accomplish? And was that taken uh, more easily by the Palestinians or was that a problematic um piece of legislation as well. Right. I have a feeling you can guess the answer to that one. But basically what happens is England takes over this region. They see right away that this is not going to be a matter where they can simply carve it up and give it away, like they gave essentially away uh, Jordan to the Husseini regime. They, they they could do that kind of great power games with a lot of the, the areas, Iraq, for example, but they couldn't do it with Israel. So they turned to the newly formed League of Nations which was the precursor to the United Nations, kind of like, let's let's make this, we had this horrible World War One. it was the war to end all wars, as they called it. We need to have some kind of international body to figure out, you know, how do we deal with these conflicts so we never have a war like this in the future. Of course, they would have one, you know, with World War Two two decades later. But so the, the British turned to the League of Nations, and the League of Nations gives England the, prim, the imprimatur, okay, you go ahead and control this territory for the time being. That's the sense of mandate we're giving to you, England, not this territory in perpetuity, but we want you to manage it and we'll figure out what to do with the territory. So that's the British mandate. And during the next 20 years, their 30 years, it was in 1917 to 1947, their increasingly unable to contain the growing tensions between the Arab and Jewish populations. Um, they try different things. They try to please the Jews. They try to please the Arabs, and they are unsuccessful. Uh, they, uh, The British themselves are increasingly suffering terrorist attacks from both Arabs and Jews who view England as an interloper, and they want to get rid of them. England, after World War II, 
and has the problem gets so much worse because after the Holocaust, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of displaced persons, Jews living in camps in, in Italy and in Germany, and they want to go to Israel. They want to immigrate to what is then called Palestine. And so there's a huge amount of pressure from Jews and the international world opinion. Let the Jews go to Israel after all. Uh, but locally, the Arabs are saying, this is impossible. We can't take more Jewish immigration. The things we've been complaining about since 1917 are just going to get worse. And so the, the tension gets to such a point that England, which is facing the same kind of thing, by the way, in India on an even larger scale, England just says, you know, that's it. We're out of here. We're giving it back to the United Nations. You figure it out. And the United Nations, you know, looking back at the several plans that had been floated and had failed over the past few decades, they say, okay, here we go. Let's divide the territory into seven pieces. Three of them will give to the Arabs. Three of them will give to the Jews, which more or less conform to the regions where Jews and Arabs had settled. Uh, not exactly. Uh, there were also complaints about how fair the divisions were, but basically six sections, three for Jews, three for Arabs. And Jerusalem will remain an international zone. This part of the story now is well known. Uh, the, the, the Yishuv, or the settlement, which is the name that was used for the pre-Israel Jewish community there, they said, yes, we'll do it. We'll accept it. And then five surrounding Arab nations attacked Israel and said, no, we reject this utterly. We're going to solve this problem of ours with force of arms. Amazingly, after a very, very difficult battle uh, that lasted over a year, the uh, Israelis, now we can call them Israelis because there's a state of Israel, uh, not only managed to keep the territory that they were given in the 1947 plan, uh, they were also able to even increase it a little bit here and there. Jerusalem remained divided, but uh, the 1949 armistice boundaries actually confirmed the state of Israel. None of the Arab nations around it made peace, so it's an armistice rather than an international boundary until much later. But so what was included at that point? If we talk about the West Bank, the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip, what was in, what was out at that point? So basically everything except the three things you mentioned uh, with and also underlining East Jerusalem. So the 1949 boundaries uh, basically went from the Mediterranean to uh, what would be called the Green Line. That is the border between uh, Israel proper and it was then Jordan. Later, it would be called the West Bank. Uh, it did not include the Golan Heights in the north, did not include the Gaza Strip, which belonged to Egypt. The Golan Heights belonged to Syria. And Jerusalem was still under control. I mean, the, the eastern part of Jerusalem, including the Rova, the Jewish quarter, was still in the hands of the Jordanians. No okay, so Palestine at this point. It was all, all the non-Israel parts were owned by the neighboring countries. Uh -huh. So there's no Palestinian ownership of land, just to, to, to make sure I get this right. Gaza Strip, owned by Egypt, West Bank, owned by Jordan, and the Golan Heights, owned by Syria. Exactly. And so let's fast forward to... 1967. This is the War, 1967. How did things change in regard to Israel's borders? Okay, excellent. So Israel is uh, in the midst of a sort of it's not a hot war with its neighbors. Um, it's more like a lukewarm war where there's constant infiltrations by Palestinians into Israeli territory. Um, 
increasingly to wreak violence on Israeli settlements and try to destabilize the uh, the young country. Um, they fight a minor war in 1956 with Egypt. And then in 1967, under a very strong charismatic leader named Gamal Abdul Nasser in Egypt, um, it's clear that Israel is going to be attacked. Uh, Nasser makes an alliance with Syria in particular to uh, to launch a major attack. And he's not secretive about it at all. He's bringing all these tanks to the border of uh, Israel. Uh, there is a United Nations peacekeeping force that is supposed to like separate Egypt and Israel. And Nasser says to the UN, take your peacekeepers out of here. And amazingly, Utant, who was the leader of the UN, agrees and removes the peacekeeping force, which is Again, nothing saying, has changed. Nothing has changed. Yeah. So, so basically, the, the Israelis confronted with this increasingly bellicose behavior by Nasser in particular, uh, they decide to launch what turns out to be an incredibly successful preemptive strike, taking a special advantage of the uh, Israeli air superiority. They essentially knock out the Egyptian air force while it's still on the tarmac. Uh, and uh, once they achieve early air superiority uh, in a very well-designed military maneuver, they uh, actually not only defend themselves, but overrun the entire Gaza Strip, the entire Sinai Peninsula, right up to the Nile River. I mean, I, you're, we're doing this on audio, but you really got to see the map to see how amazing this is. They also uh, invade and take over the entire region up to the Jordan River, the region which Jews refer to as Yehuda and Shomron in Israel. Um, most Westerners call it the West Bank because it's on the West Bank of the Jordan River. Uh, and they also defend themselves from Syria in very hot battles and take over the Golan Heights in the north. So these regions suddenly come under Israeli sovereignty. And within six days, the war is over. The Arab armies are completely destroyed. It is a, a paradigm-shifting moment where, once again, Israel has not only defended itself, but has been able to actually expand its territory, and the Arab world is completely shaken by it. Now, if I can go a little further in the history here, unless you yeah, have a so just, to to recap, just to recap, what we're saying now is that Israel from 1949 it had basically from what is called nowadays from the river to the sea, with the exclusion of the three areas that we talked about, Gaza Strip, West Bank, and Golan Heights. But mm -hmm. those were owned by three separate countries, not by the Palestinians. Fast forward to 1967, Israel, obviously, with tremendous siyata dishmaya, was able to militarily capture those three areas, not from the Palestinians, from those countries. And right. then when we talk about from the river to the sea, Baruch Hashem, Israel was freed, right? So so all of those areas were, were freed. And now we have an intact Israel as we more or less have today. Um, but maybe walk us through what happened fast forward, because Gaza Strip maybe had an exception to the rule there um, in 2005. So yeah, I'm turning it over to you. What's going on since then till now? Well, I would push back a little bit on your use of the slogan, from the river to the sea, Israel will be free. Uh, you could say, from the river to the sea, this will be Israeli sovereignty, because it was. Israel controlled those regions, but they had a massive human problem, because Living in those regions were lots of hostile Arabs who did not want to live under Israeli rule. 
And were Israel to annex those regions, meaning say this is for Israel, Israel wants to be two things at once. It wants to be a Jewish state, right? That's the whole idea of Zionism is a homeland for the Jewish people, a return to their ancestral homeland. Uh, it's involved in the, the religious idea of the, you know, the coming of Mashiach. And on a secular level, it's a refuge for Jews. It has to be a Jewish country. And that means Jewish majority. The population has to be majority Jewish. The other thing that Israel wants to be desperately because of values inculcated not only in the Jewish tradition, but certainly in the modern Western tradition, is it wants to be democratic. One person, one vote. And so now what do you do with somewhere in the neighborhood in 1967 of two million people who are not Jewish, who are living within the boundaries of Israel? Do you annex those territories and make them citizens? Immediately you wipe out or you come close to wiping out the Jewish majority and Israel is no longer a Jewish state. Or do you, and this is what Israel decided to do, do you not annex the territories? You call them occupied or administered. You control them for security reasons, but you do not give the people living there citizenship. You don't give them the vote. Uh, and that means it's less of a democracy. And so between 1967 until today for the West Bank and until 2005 for Gaza, Israel had to compromise its democratic values and to not allow those people who are now, by the way, definitely call them themselves Palestinians, not allow them to have the equal rights to Jews and Arabs who are living in Israel proper. It is important to note that Israel retained its democratic status. 20% of Israelis are not Jewish. They serve in the Knesset. They serve in the Supreme Court, all kinds of things like that. But you know, Israel could handle a 20% non-Jewish minority. It can't handle a 50% minority, or it's not even a minority anymore. So right. here's essentially the beginnings of the Palestinian problem. What do you do with those people? Especially the Gaza Strip, which is an incredibly densely populated, very deeply impoverished region. And even when Israel made peace with Egypt in the late 1970s, Egypt said, we do not want the Gaza Strip. And so it's, it's not like Israel was able to say, fine, you take Gaza back, Egypt. Egypt doesn't want it. Egypt says, Israel, that's still your headache. And in fact, th that was their headache until 2005 when they sort of changed headaches, I guess, by disengaging and saying, hey, Gaza, you're on your own. Uh, but the problems obviously persisted and, and in a different fashion. Right. Well, now, what do we say to those people who say Israel is occupying the Gaza Strip? Is there any validity to that or is that just a fabrication? Because if they if they exited in 2005, maybe there, there was a blockade to ensure security. That was for security purposes, but they weren't stopping uh, flowers and baked goods from getting in or fruits and vegetables. It was yeah. concrete. They didn't do a very good job, apparently, in having a blockade. Uh, but was there any occupation going on since 2005. So it's it's an issue of semantics, really. Uh, you're absolutely right in that when Israel disengaged, Gazans had the opportunity to possibly build for peace. Um, but And the blockade was very minimal at that point, and certainly quite manageable, and had the Gazans at that point. I mean, I'm, I'm a historian, so I don't really work well with alternate versions of history. But if 
if Gaza had at that point said, okay, we're going to concentrate on our material benefit uh, and developing the economy, creating a tourist economy, who knows what else, then maybe things would have gone very differently. But they immediately had an election, the only one they've had since 2005. They elected Hamas, a terrorist organization bent on Israel's destruction. And as soon as they were in power, Hamas got rid of their rival Fatah, which later would make some kind of peace deal with Israel. Not a very good one, but nevertheless, Hamas got rid of their rivals and then immediately started bombing Israel and importing not only weapons when they could, which occasioned Israel's need to blockade the territory, but also through the importation of so-called mixed-use items. Like, for example, um, you know, they received from the United Nations humanitarian funds lots of, uh, of piping to build water desalination plants, and Hamas took those and made them into cylinders for rockets, literally digging them out of the ground to make them into rockets. And so Israel had to impose an even stricter blockade on mixed-use things, not only cylinders for piping, but also cement, which can be used for regular construction. It can also be used to build tunnels under hospitals for Hamas fighters. So, you know, the blockade uh, was absolutely necessary for security purposes, but it, it, it fed into the Hamas narrative of the oppression of Israel. Dr. Abramson, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure meeting you. Such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.